0: Good. Well, it is, it is great to be here. Lovely to be amongst you students. Um, I have been given the most hospitable welcome here at Christendom. Um, it's been very, very pleasant, so thank you for that, for that welcome. It's been a treat to be here already. Um, hopefully it'll still be a treat for you after I finish talking. Um, so here I am speaking about the, the life and the work of one of our favorite authors, J.R.R. Tolkien, now here we are, 50 years after his death, and his his contribution to the literature and culture of the English-speaking world, and indeed beyond that, is widely recognized. So we have, for instance, um, the indication that the Royal Mint in the UK honored him with a special two-pound coin. Um, yes, it's jolly really nice, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> It's got King Charles III, one of the first coins that has King Charles III's head on it. Tolkien's monogram on the other side, describing him as writer, poet, and scholar. And his magnum opus, The Lord of the Rings, at this point is a worldwide bestseller. It's been translated into more than 50 languages, from Arabic and Chinese to Thai and Turkish. The film adaptations are loved by millions who've never read the book. <laughs> you know, you laugh, but fair enough, right? You've got to come to Tolkien somehow. And I know a good many people who have, who have seen the films first and then thought, this is really amazing, and then read the book. Well, God bless them. However you get here, you get here. So this, this is good. Um, and whatever we might think about Amazon's Rings of Power, um, (laughs) I have not seen it. Um, It was the most expensive television series ever made, and there's a second season on the way. All of this is simply empirical evidence that Tolkien is a very big deal in the wider world. Yet we have a puzzle. Tolkien was both thoroughly English, and also a devout Catholic of a traditionalist mindset. His world of Middle Earth is grounded in English soil, and his religious views are shared by only a tiny fraction of his total readership. And this gives us a paradox that is worth investigating. We have a deeply Christian man who has produced an imaginative work that's fantastically popular with readers of all faiths and none. So let's turn now to a quote from one of Tolkien's letters, and it's one that I'm sure that this crowd has all seen before, or at least the first line, which is the most often quoted. The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the revision, That is why I have not put in or have cut out practically all references to anything like religion, to cults and practices in the imaginary world. For the religious element is absorbed into the story and the symbolism. However, this is very clumsily put and sounds more self-important than I feel. For as a matter of fact, I have consciously planned very little. And to chiefly be grateful for having been brought up since I was eight, in a faith that has nourished me and taught me all the little that I know. What are we to make of this? One thing that we should be clear about from the start, it doesn't mean that Christianity in general, or Catholicism in particular, is some sort of interpretive key that unlocks a secret meaning of the Lord of the Rings. No. And indeed, If we take seriously that Tolkien described his work as fundamentally religious and Catholic, we must also take seriously the way that he qualified and contextualized statements like this one. Tolkien was always emphatic that his writings could not be read as simple allegory. As he remarked himself rather tartly in one letter, the Lord of the Rings is not about anything but itself. Certainly it has no allegorical intentions, general, particular, or topical, moral, religious, or political. Ooh. <laughs> now this is borne out by the massive popularity of his story. It has a global fan base of, that includes millions, vast numbers of people who don't share his religious belief. So whatever the Lord of the Rings is, it's not a simple allegory of the Christian faith. It's not an evangelical presentation of the Gospels wrapped up in a fantasy. But that is not to say that the Lord of the Rings bears no resemblance, no relationship to the Christian religion that Tolkien actually believed in. His great work is, as he puts it, of course fundamentally religious and Catholic. That's of course, is very interesting. It seems natural and obvious to him that it should be so. And that is because, as Tolkien says, it is fundamentally Catholic. Remember, he was a scholar of language. His word choice is very precise. It is fundamentally Catholic. That is, at its fundament, at the roots in its essence, And this religious and Catholic element is, he explains, woven into the story. It's absorbed into the story and the symbolism. It's it's in the warp and the woof of the text. It's implicit. It's indirect. It was not consciously planned. Rather, the whole world of Middle Earth and everything in it is rooted in its author's Christian vision of reality. And he says that this rootedness, this unplanned but essential quality to his work, comes about because he has been raised and nourished in the Catholic faith. Tolkien's faith was lifelong and deep. He was a committed Christian, and he was not shy about saying so publicly. He also drew attention to the importance of his faith in his work. In one letter, Tolkien explained, as he put it, that there is a scale of significance in the types of facts that are relevant to understanding a writer's work. He places at the bottom of the scale his preference for certain languages, explaining that although this has some relation to his writings, it does not really explain the works. Other facts, he says, are really significant, such as his rural childhood before the age of the machine, But then he goes on to say, more important, I am a Christian, which can be deduced from my stories and, in fact, a Roman Catholic. Now, we know that his childhood experiences and his linguistic interests were imaginatively formative. But by Tolkien's own reckoning, his faith was more important for understanding his writings than either of these. So if we are to understand and appreciate Tolkien's writings to the fullest degree, we need to look deeply to understand what he himself identified as being fundamental to his identity and to the way that he expressed himself in his fiction. Now the way that we go about this is important. Tolkien's faith was shaped by his personal context and his deliberate commitments in the spiritual life. He was a Christian, which means certain things in contrast to the generally secular approach of the modern world in his day and in ours. More specifically, he was a Catholic, which provided a particular shape and structure for his faith. And not just a Catholic, but one who lived out his faith through the first three quarters of the 20th century which featured two world wars and major changes in the way that the church understood and expressed itself. Furthermore, Tolkien can really only be fully understood if we appreciate that he was not only a 20th century Catholic, but an English Catholic, part of a faith community that had experienced persecution, marginalization, and restrictions on civil rights, some of which lasted until Tolkien's adult life. And lastly, we should remember also that, especially for American readers of Tolkien, we we really have to keep in mind that the experience of being an English Catholic was, and is, very different from that of being an American Catholic. So we have here a faithful Catholic audience, but our experience as American Catholics do not translate directly over into what it was like to be an English Catholic, we have to remember that. And as we look at him as an English Catholic of the 20th century, we need also to note the way that his experience was greatly shaped by the particular circumstances of his close connection in childhood and youth, and indeed throughout his life, with the congregation of the Oratory of St. Philip Neri. More on that later. And so tonight, I want to trace some instances of the way that his faith was fundamental to the shaping of Middle Earth and looking particularly at the themes of beauty, humor, humility, and suffering. So to do that, we need to begin at the beginning. Tolkien was in fact baptized as an infant in the Anglican Cathedral in Bloemfontein, South Africa, but the heat of Bloemfontein was bad for his health, and when he was three years old, his mother Mabel took him and his baby brother Hillary back to England for what they thought was a temporary visit. But they never returned, and Tolkien never saw his father again. The following year, just as his mother Mabel was preparing to bring the boys back to South Africa, his father Arthur died, and his widowed mother and her two sons stayed in Birmingham. And four years later, in 1900, Mabel was received into the Catholic Church. Her family was intensely hostile to this move, and they cut off financial support and pressured her to recant her Catholicism. Tolkien was eight years old when his mother became a Catholic, and so he was above the age of reason and was considered by the church at that time to be treated as an adult in this respect, and he was not, as it were, grandfathered in when his mother entered the church. Rather, he was expected to be received into the church in his own right um, in the due time. And so, although Tolkien is often thought of as being a cradle Catholic, he wasn't. And though he might take for granted that, of course, he remained a Catholic in honor of his mother, it could easily have been otherwise. He could have rejected the faith that had led directly to poverty and stress in his family. And we should remember that his grandparents and his aunts and his uncles would have warmly welcomed him back into the Anglican faith of his dead father. In the strongly anti-Catholic culture of early 20th century, it would in many ways have made his life easier and more comfortable if he had just quietly reverted to Anglicanism or made his Catholic faith a purely private matter. But he didn't not as a boy and not later in life, but he might have done so. And bearing this in mind will help us to appreciate more fully the shape of his faith and what it meant to him. So Tolkien was confirmed as a Catholic shortly before his 12th birthday at the Birmingham Oratory, and he took the confirmation name of Philip after St. Philip Mary, uh, He's the 16th century Italian who was the founder of the Oratorians. And this became very important to Tolkien. And in later years, I believe, it even finds its way into the famous monogram of his initials. We can trace out John Ronald Ruel Philip Tolkien. After his mother died in 1904, the Birmingham Oratory became of central importance for Tolkien. Father Francis Morgan became his guardian. And many years later, Tolkien recalled that at the oratory, he had the advantage of a good Catholic home in excelsis, home in the highest, virtually a junior inmate of the oratory house, which contained many learned fathers, largely converts. Now, the oratory was a remarkable place for any young man to grow up, and especially for one as sensitive and brilliant as Tolkien. Now, a little bit of history here. The oratory in Birmingham was the first to be established in England, and it was founded by none other than John Henry Newman. He was one of the leading lights of Oxford before he became um, a Catholic, and he was fellow of Oriel College Oxford, vicar of the University Church. Now I noticed uh, this morning in the chapel that you have a stained glass window of Newman, which shows him At Littlemore, with the standing desk there, which which I have seen at Littlemore, and that standing desk uh, was actually used as the altar uh, at the mass in which he was received into the church. And that that standing desk is is still there in the Newman Museum today. So Newman, after he became a Catholic, um, he was ordained a priest in Rome. He returned to England with his friends who had been converted and ordained alongside him, and he decided to set up a religious community and he chose the oratory of St. Philip Neri as the most suitable. So he then founded the Birmingham Oratory in 1852, and he was its superior until his death in 1890. Now, one of the reasons that Newman felt that the Oratorian rule was a good fit for himself and his fellow very well-educated converts was that it allowed the retention of personal property, such as books, and it encouraged scholarly pursuits among its members. And in addition to valuing the intellectual life, Newman explained that the oratory rule sets great store by the arts as a means to draw people closer to God, especially music. Oratories have a particular mission to the more highly educated in the community, and they emphasize outreach and evangelism through the beauty of architecture, vestments, and the liturgy, and especially the liturgy in terms of music. Now this positive attitude towards the intellectual life and the arts continued to Tolkien's day. The parish magazine of those days is full of poetry and articles about literature. And we can see that this is an environment in which the young Tolkien, interested in art and literature from his boyhood, found an environment that encouraged those aspects of his personality and his interests. Now I've mentioned that the oratorians place special emphasis on music. St. Philip had decided that a good way to engage the young men of his day was to arrive at musical evenings, interwoven with scripture readings, lectures, and discussions. And it's because of this interest in music that composers began to create oratorios, which originally meant pieces written specifically for the oratory in Rome. And the Birmingham oratorios continued this tradition, They produced new programs for musical evenings under the guidance of Father Robert Eaton. And it's interesting to consider whether these oratorios that interwove scripture and music might have made some contribution to the inspiration for Tolkien's account in the Silmarillion of the creation of Middle Earth expressed in musical terms. Tolkien was also introduced as a boy at the oratory to plain chant or Gregorian chant, something that he would probably not have heard as an Anglican. And it made a great impression on him. His daughter Priscilla later recalled of her, of his fa- of her father that the only kind of music I knew him to love dearly was Gregorian plainchant. And indeed, here we can trace a direct influence on Tolkien's Middle Earth. Soon after the publication of The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien explained that a few of the songs in it are written to specific tunes. And one of these, he said, is the Elvis chant that Galadriel sings to the fellowship as they depart from Lothlorien. This, he says, is the lament that has in mind the tones used in the Lamentatio of Tenebrae. This is a chant of the readings from the Bible's book of Lamentations during that Tenebrae par- um, prayer service of Holy Week. So here we have a, a, direct, a direct link to Middle-earth. Now, another influence on Tolkien as a, as a young man, both aesthetic and spiritual, was a sermon in stone, the new Birmingham Oratory Church. When Tolkien first came to the Oratory as a 10 year old boy, it was very different from the impressive building that we know today. It was built when the Oratorian's funds were severely limited. And it had, as the, even the, the oratory historian himself, Father Henry Tristam, described it, no pretensions of any sort to architectural beauty. In fact, it simply cons- consisted of four plain brick walls and a roof, and the roof itself was bought, ready-made, and secondhand from a disused factory. It was, he said, dingy, shabby, and dowdy, although quaint and attractive in many ways, and entirely devotional. Now, during his boyhood, Tolkien witnessed the complete transformation of this church. As the size of the congregation increased, this old church became crowded and inadequate. And the decision was made to replace it with a new classical-style basilica as a memorial to Cardinal Newman. And since the oratorians had no other land on which to build, the memorial church was constructed around the old church, literally built around it. And the old church remained in use for two years before it was finally demolished. It had been gradually pulled down as its successor was built up around it. First Mass was celebrated in the partially completed new building on October 9th, 1906, the anniversary of Newman's entrance into the Catholic Church. And it was officially opened on December 8th, 1909, the solemnity of the Immaculate Conception. The choice of liturgically significant dates for the key events in the key stages in the opening of the church would have been Tolkien's first exposure to the way that layers of meaning can be created and the significance of events heightened by the deliberate intersection of the religious calendar with outward events. And here we might be able to trace an early influence on Tolkien's later decision when writing The Lord of the Rings to choose March 25th as the date of the destruction of the ring. When he was writing the story, the chronology of the narrative turned up that the fellowship sets out from Rivendell on December 25th, the nativity. Tolkien explained that this was a coincidence. He hadn't deliberately chosen uh, December 25th as this date. And he notes that the story is pre-Christian. These dates, December 25th and March 25th, don't and can't have any significance for the characters because the events of the Annunciation and the Nativity are in the future of Middle Earth. But Tolkien seems to have appreciated the fortuitous liturgical resonance for the reader or for his own enjoyment, and he left in the December 25th date and not only left that date in, but deliberately chose March 25th, the Annunciation, for the fulfillment of the quest. Now this is not allegorical, it's not even symbolic, but it does provide a resonance with the life of Christ for the reader who notices. On a more fundamental level, the slow motion transformation of this plain utilitarian oratory church into a place of great beauty must have made an impression on Tolkien as a young man. He was 12 when the construction began. He was 17 when it was completed. And so here, he had witnessed an outward and visible indication of the oratorian's commitment to beauty in the Christian life. And he had seen before him, now worshiped in, a building that was a representation in art and architecture of what they believed as Catholics. And what's more, the dismantling and the rebuilding of the oratory church was an objective correlative to Tolkien's own life at that time. When the foundation stone of the new church was laid in the spring of 1904, his mother was still alive, and his domestic situation, although it was circumscribed by poverty and familial exclusion, was still solid and sound. But all too soon, the security of home life would be torn apart, Mabel would die. A new stability would emerge, but slowly and painfully in a gradual process of reconstruction. So Tolkien's early years were indeed full of loss and sorrow. By the age of 12, he had lost not only his father, but then his deeply beloved mother, as a teenager, he fell in love only to have his guardian father, Francis, forbid him to have any contact with his sweetheart for three years until he came of age. And he obeyed, although it was very painful, out of love for his guardian, whom he considered his second father. When he did reconnect with Edith, and this is a dramatic story of its own, they married in 1916, shortly before Tolkien was sent to the front lines of of the Great War, where he fought in the Battle of the Somme. And Tolkien later recalled that all but one of his close friends were killed in the war. He himself contracted a severe case of trench fever, which invalided him out, it became chronic, and it contributed to health problems through the rest of his life. These experiences would be more than enough to account for a bleak view of life. And Tolkien did have a depressive streak in his character. But what's surprising is not that he had moments of melancholy, but that he had such a deep-seated streak of joy and fun. His exceptionally complex intellect was balanced by what he described in later years as a very simple sense of humor, which even my appreciative critics find tiresome. And here we can see another influence from those formative years at the oratory. St. Philip, as well as being called the third Apostle of Rome, is called the Apostle of Joy. And St. Philip taught that the first remedy against melancholy was to have a good conscience, wherefore the saint prescribed the powerful means of a general confession. Hence his maxim, that they should maintain cheerfulness and preserve themselves from sin. And this approach of the oratorians in nurturing spiritual health through fostering cheerfulness, even or especially in hard times, would certainly have been of assistance in helping the orphaned young Tolkien to ease back into an enjoyment of life. And it goes deeper than that. Tolkien had a readiness to be silly throughout his life. Hugh Rogan recalled an episode from his childhood when Tolkien came to visit the family and showed off his party trick. He went up to the first floor landing and fell all the way down quite spectacularly. About a dozen steps, I guess. Arms and legs splaying about in all directions and an immense clatter. We were literally breathtaking. (laughs) One thinks it might have been drawn from life. And the invitations he sent for his son Christopher's 21st birthday party show his sense of humor as well. Carriages at midnight, ambulances at 2 a.m., wheelbarrows at 5 a.m., hearses at daybreak. Good party. You might think, surely a full professor at Oxford Later, the author of the worldwide bestseller, The Lord of the Rings, would eventually get properly serious and and live up to his status as a figure of high academic repute, and literary lion. But no. In fact, some of the stories of Tolkien's adult sense of humor can seem undignified, even embarrassing. There's a story about him producing a little withered green thing in his pocket at a literary society meeting and insisting it was the shoe of a leprechaun. There's the time when apparently he chased his neighbor down the road waving an Anglo-Saxon axe. <laughs> and then there's the time as an elderly man when, at least on one occasion, he, he quite disconcerted the shopkeeper by paying with a handful of coins that included his false teeth. <laughs> Ick. Um, now, I could only presume that he had sneezed or coughed and then finding his dentures there loose, he just... <laughs> hand over the whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> I admit, when I, when I first studied Tolkien, I just I was a bit like, what? This is just weird and kind of gross. Um, but it's actually consistent with the teachings of St. Philip Neri, Because Philip, the founder of the Oratorians, considered spiritual pride to be a serious danger and humility to be the best remedy. St. Philip remarked, "'Let us pray God, if he gives us any virtue or any gift, "'to keep it hidden even from ourselves, "'that we may preserve our humility "'and not take occasion of pride because of it.'" Now, this Philippine teaching on humility, which Tolkien absorbed as a young man, didn't preclude achievements or taking satisfaction in achievement. The oratorians were very highly educated and cultivated men. Rather, it sought to keep the right perspective. St. Philip explained it does not take away our merit in the spiritual life if we enjoy praise and acclaim for our work, if that praise arises naturally from the work and wasn't sought after for its own sake, and as long as we don't get puffed up and self-important as a result. Now, St. Philip himself was an exceptionally gifted man, and he was, he was considered a living saint in his own day, in his own lifetime and he was keenly aware of the dangers of playing up to other people's expectations. So for instance, St. Philip once showed up at an important social event with half of his beard shaved off. (laughs) Just half. And the reason was that he knew that he'd only been invited to this party because his wealthy host wanted to show off, like, look at how pious I am, I've got the most holy man in Rome will come to my party. So in order to prevent himself from being put on a pedestal, St. Philip deliberately made himself look like a fool. That takes some guts. (laughs) Now this early formation in humor and humility would stand Tolkien in good stead. When the Lord of the Rings became a worldwide sensation, fan mail just poured in, often of the most gushing kind, and he admitted that he enjoyed the praise but he was also alert to the spiritual dangers of this praise, which he calls incense, as in the incense offered before idols. In 1944, he remarked in a fan letter that he'd received from an American boy who declared that he had read The Hobbit no fewer than 11 times. Tolkien's remark is telling. I find these letters, which I still occasionally get, apart from the smell of incense which fallen man can never quite fail to savor, make me rather sad. What thousands of grains of good human corn must fall on barren, stony ground if such a very small drop of water should be so intoxicating? But I suppose one should be grateful for the grace and fortune that have allowed me to provide even the drop. In the last year of his life, he commented, being a cult figure in one's own lifetime, I'm afraid, is not at all pleasant. Pleasant. However, I do not find that it tends to puff one up. In my case, at any rate, it makes me feel extremely small and inadequate. But even the nose of a very modest idol cannot remain entirely untickled by the sweet smell of incense. So we see that, to the end of his life, Tolkien could laugh at this excessive veneration and also laugh at his own readiness to enjoy it. And this is due in no small part to his formation and spirituality of St. Philip Neri. And this aspect of Tolkien's personality is reflected in his most famous creation, the hobbits, a people who are by nature merry and full of laughter, fond of cheerful jests at all times. They are hospitable and delighted in parties. But in noting Tolkien's famous remark that I am, in fact, a hobbit in all but size, we will do well to recall his description of the hobbits as also being curiously tough. As he puts it in the prologue to The Lord of the Rings, they were perhaps so unwearyingly fond of good things, not least because they could, when put to it, do without them, and could survive rough handling by grief, foe, or weather in a way that astonished them, astonished those who did not know them well, and looked no further than their bellies and their well-fed faces." The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings take the characters and the reader through darkness, loss, and sorrow, but the books are grounded in the simple, joyful life of the Hobbits in the Shire, where both books begin and end. So humor, then, has taken us to humility. And here we may well be reminded that Tolkien had a great devotion to Mary, Mary. He once said that it was upon Our Lady that all my own small perception of beauty, both in majesty and simplicity, is founded. One of the prayers that Tolkien recommended learning by heart is the Magnificat, Mary's Song of Praise. He hath regarded the humility of his handmaid. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their heart. He hath put down the mighty from their seat and hath exalted the humble. And it's in almost exactly these terms that Tolkien explained one of the fundamental themes of the Lord of the Rings. It is, he wrote, planned to be habitocentric, that is primarily a study of the ennoblement or sanctification of the humble. And elsewhere, his thoughts on this theme led him to quote directly from the Magnificat. He remarks that he saw the value of hobbits in putting earth under the feet of romance and providing subjects for ennoblements and heroes more praiseworthy than the professionals. I would not be a hero is, of course, as good a start for a hero as I would not be a bishop for a bishop. And then in the very next sentence he adds, we are all equal before the great author who puts down the mighty from their seat and exalts the humble. So it was evidently entirely natural for his mind to connect the humility of the hobbits to the humility of Mary. Now another prayer that Tolkien found deeply meaningful is the Litany of Loretto. He also recommended learning this by heart, and he translated a portion of it into his Elvish language of Konya. And in the Litany of Loretto, Mary is addressed under various titles. Some present her in symbolic terms, Mirror of Justice, seat of Wisdom, Mystical Rose, etc. One of these titles is Consolatrix Afflictorum, Comforter of the Afflicted. In 1916, when Tolkien was in the trenches in France, on the front lines of the Great War, he wrote a poem in honor of Mary which begins with the line, O lady, mother, enthroned amid the stars. And he gave this poem two different titles. One of these was Consolatrix Afflictorum, one of the Marian titles from the Litany of Loretto. And given the circumstances, it's not surprising that he chose to reflect on Our Lady as Comforter of the Afflicted. The other title that he gave it was Stella Vespertina, This is connected to the Litany of Loretto at one remove. It's Tolkien's own invention, and it's intriguing variants of one of the litany's titles for Mary, Stella Matutina. So, whereas Stella Matutina means morning star, Tolkien's variant means evening star. Now, this symbolism of the morning star and the evening star is, is rich and complex in Christian iconography, And there are several different ways that this ends up having an influence on Tolkien's work. So we should always remember that when we're tracing one line of influence, it doesn't preclude other lines of influence also having an effect. But with regard to the litany of Loretto, Mary is the Stella Matsutina, the morning star, because Christ is traditionally symbolized by the sun. So his mother Mary, who brought him into the world at the nativity, is associated with the morning star, as a lesser light that indicates the imminent arrival of the greater light. And that's exactly the imagery of her title, Stella Matutina, in the Litany of Loretto. Now, Tolkien was interested in astronomy. He would have known that both the morning star and the evening star refer to the planet Venus, since it becomes visible in the western sky after sunset as well as the eastern sky before sunrise. And these celestial appearances would have become weighted with deep emotional and spiritual significance once he began to serve on the front lines of the Great War. In the war, soldiers were required to stand to at dawn and dusk each day. As historian Paul Fussell explains, stand to was a solemn moment. Twice a day, everyone stared silently across the wasteland at the enemy's hiding places and considered how to act if a field gray line suddenly appeared and grew larger and larger through the mist and the half-light. The military routines of standing to arms in combat readiness at daybreak and nightfall were, as Fossil notes, moments of heightened ritual anxiety and all the more cruelly wrenching in contrast with the prevailing literary conceits of dawn and dusk as images of peace and tranquility. Tolkien's adaptation of the litany to address Mary as Stella Vespertina, as opposed to Stella Matutina, is thus both astronomically and theologically apt, and all the more so when we consider that it's paired with his other title, Consolatrix Afflectorum. The image of Mary as the evening star invites us to consider how she remains visible when the sun, her sun, has disappeared beyond the horizon. Christ may have died, but his mother is still present, consoling those who, like her, mourn his loss. In the nightmarish situation of the trenches, with the problem of evil and suffering so clearly apparent, this is a powerful image of faith as experienced or at least as hoped for in the midst of darkness years later, Tolkien gave to his character Arwen in The Lord of the Rings the name Undomiel, meaning evening star. In giving her this name of evening star, he was giving her a title that had Marian associations for him, and specifically Marian associations that were rooted in his Great War experiences. And the significance of this title is underscored by the fact that twice he contrasts it with the beauty of full daylight as represented by Galadriel, Gimli the dwarf prefers Galadriel's beauty, and he challenges Eomer to agree with him. But when Eomer puts Arwen first, Gimli concedes, You have chosen the evening, but my love is given to the morning, and my heart forebodes that soon it will pass away forever. Likewise, Frodo, after seeing Arwen, the even star of her people, declares, Now not day only shall be beloved, but night too shall be beautiful and blessed. Evidently, this finding of beauty in the night was of tremendous importance for Tolkien. It allowed him to explore in The Lord of the Rings images and and stories of great darkness without losing sight of hope. In his 1916 poem, Tolkien described Mary as enthroned amid the stars. Another indication, he sees her as a figure present in the darkness of night, not just in the brightness of day. And we can perhaps see the influence of this celestial image of Mary in the scene where Sam and Frodo, having escaped from the orcs, begin their seemingly hopeless trek into Mordor. Sam looks up, and he sees a single star shining in the cloud rack Above the mountains. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For, like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Tolkien was a man who endured much sorrow. And he recognized that there are some wounds that cannot be healed in this life. I've always felt that one of the most moving lines in The Lord of the Rings is is at the very end, where Frodo, having come back to the Shire, everything seems to have a happy ending. He's he's back in, in the Shire. But he says, no. He explains he's been wounded too deeply. He must go on to the Grey Havens. And he can't live out his life in the restored Shire as he had hoped. He says to Sam, I have been too deeply hurt, Sam. I tried to save the Shire, and it has been saved, but not for me. But not for me. Tolkien recognized that there are these wounds that are lasting, that can only be healed in the next life. Now, many of his contemporaries abandoned their faith in the darkness of the Great War. He didn't. He persevered. But it wasn't easy. After the war, he went through a barren stretch. And indeed, he recalled that for a number of years, he says, I almost ceased to practice my religion. His faith was ultimately renewed and made stronger, but it was hard won. And this hard won quality of his faith meant that he understood beauty to be more lasting than sorrow, that he believed that there is a happy ending, not just in stories, but in reality. In his great essay on fairy stories, Tolkien says this of the happy ending of a fairy story. He says, It does not deny the existence of discatastrophe, of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat, and insofar is evangelium, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. Beauty, humor, humility, sorrow, suffering, hope, these were all woven together in Tolkien's spirituality. And I believe that these aspects of his faith form part of the foundations of Middle Earth, that deep soil in which all the stories of his legendarium are rooted. Thank you. Thank you. You've been a very attentive audience, um, and we have time for Q and A. So there's a mic, and if you raise hands, I will call upon you, and the mic will be delivered into your hands, and you can ask a question. And I like Q and A, so let's let's have some questions. Yes.
1: Um, Thank you, Dr. Ordway, for your talk. Um, I was wondering, first, if uh, Tolkien had any influence on your conversion to Catholicism, and also if you see any potential role for Tolkien in evangelization.
0: Great question. Yes, next question. (laughs) 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 I I will unpack slightly, yes. um, To make a long story very short, Tolkien had a huge influence on my conversion in a very indirect way. Um, I have loved Tolkien since I was a little girl. I I literally don't remember when I first read The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Like they've always been part of that my of my experience. Um, but I was not raised in a Christian family, um, and so I had no idea there were any of these Christian themes. Um, and it wasn't just Tolkien. I mean, I literally I think I was the only child in America who read The Chronicles of Narnia and did not know that Aslan was Jesus. <laughs> didn't didn't figure it out um, until much later. Um, but he always attracted me, um, him and N.C.S. And Lewis, and, it, and then I ended up writing my PhD dissertation on fantasy, and I was an atheist at the time, um, and writing my dissertation about, centered a deeply Catholic author, was an interesting choice, you know? Um, but I could tell he was important, and his intellectual heft and his creative genius attracted me, and I knew this is the real deal, even though I didn't, didn't believe what he believed. And so ultimately, Years later, um, I found myself realizing I'm an atheist, but all my favorite authors are Christians. What's up with that? And I decided that I, I wanted to investigate. Now, I didn't, I didn't want to become a Christian at that point, but I thought very condescendingly, but the Holy Spirit is gracious and works even through even <laughs> through that. I said, well, you know, these guys are so brilliant. Maybe Christianity, although it must be false, maybe it's not quite as stupid as I think it is, Um, And so I looked into it, and then I was just gobsmacked, because I thought, oh, good heavens, this is actually true. (laughs) i better do something about that. Um, And then I think, you know, that was my conversion to Christianity, and I do think that Tolkien's witness as a Catholic was kind of in the background, um, but very subtle, um, very subtle. And so I think this is an important thing to to think about in terms of his value for evangelism— because I always feel quite cautious about this, because on the one hand, absolutely, yes, I mean, he, he creates a world, presents a world that's profoundly attractive, um, and and it's attractive, we know, because it's, gro- it's grounded in reality, which is, I mean, Catholicism is true. It, it, it is the way the universe works, and he's grounded in it. Um, but I think it can, how do I put this? Um, C.S. Lewis makes a very important distinction between receiving literature and using literature. And it's not that you can't use literature, um, but we have to be very careful about it. And my view is that if we take, say, The Lord of the Rings and try to use it for evangelism, it will break in our hands. Um, the The beauty of it will turn to ashes, it will turn to sawdust, and people will just brush it off as like, oh, well, you're just proselytizing you know, through this. So I think we need to have a light touch. Um, and, and recognize that you know, the, the great beauty of his faith, and this is something I talk about, and I will, I will put the cover of my book up here. Um, I do talk about this in Tolkien's faith. Um, one of the points that I want to make here in this, in this book and in all of my speaking on Tolkien is that his work is so profoundly Catholic because he was profoundly Catholic, and so we can encounter the faith through his work. We may not recognize what we are encountering, and that is okay. In fact, that is often necessary. If I had been told things about the Catholicism and Lord of the Rings when I was 20, it, it would have actually just irritated me. Um. But I knew it was beautiful, and so I was drawn to it until the day I was ready to, to, to realize he's talking about things that had connections to, to reality and to sacramental embrace. So I think we have to kind of cultivate humility and patience and say, it's okay for people to just love Tolkien and not, not see it. Let them love it. Let it work in them, and then maybe they'll start asking some questions, and we can talk about, about these things. So that was a long answer, but it was a really, really great and important question. So I will. I want to get lots of questions, so I will try to be more concise in the other ones. Um, but you're also stuck in two questions at once, so there you go. Um, brave person sitting near the front. Yes, you get you get bonus points for that. Um, I, had, I had a question regarding the Silmarillion, because we, we um, know pretty well about how um, he speaks of his religious imagery and the Lord of the Rings being, like, not a deliberate choice, but that um, he allowed it in because of how it reflected his own understanding of reality. Do you think that then some of the more, um, I guess, obvious things in the Silmarillion were, like, deliberately meant to reflect his religion? Uh, another good question. That's a great... Um, yes. Um, uh, now, I think it's important, too, to note that things in the Silmarillion, and his whole legendary, it's all, it's all connected, um, he, he felt that he's writing about reality... And he once in an interview, someone asked him something about Middle Earth and made a comment about how there's no God in Middle Earth, and he was quite ticked off. He said, "Yes, there is." Um, and the interviewer said, "Well, what God?" And he said, "The God." You know, what what other one would there be? So Eru Iluvatar is God, um, because he wasn't inventing a different pantheon of gods. It was a different way of looking at God. You know, what would it be like if God had, had chosen to make the world in this way? Um, and his creation narrative is not identical to the Genesis narrative. There's certain theological differences. Because he's, he's sub-creating, he's playing, he's exploring. Um, so I think we can recognize those as, as deliberate impulses um, because he didn't compartmentalize. He wasn't saying, well, here's reality and here's my faith. It's like, well, there is one God. This is how the, this is how the universe works. So it very naturally comes into, if he's, if he's creating a world in which there is God present, it's going to be God. Even though in the world that he invents, it's a world, as he put it, of natural theology. So the elves don't talk about the Trinity because it has not been revealed to them. So it's, it's quite complex, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, if you think of it as the sort of the underpinning, you know, he's, he's like of the foundation layer, um, sort of infusing its way up into the stories. That's probably a helpful way to, to envision how it's working. Um, Right, let's get somebody way in the back to give them hope. There is hope. Like, way in the back. Is there somebody way in the back where, where my vision can't see? Yes, okay. Uh, yes, Wait, you just raise your hand a bit higher. Yes, yes, you. I'm sorry, that, would, that sounded, yes. Wait, yeah, there you go. Excellent. You succeeded.
1: That was a great speech. Um, I, I'm curious, you, you brought up the idea of kind of the, uh, the unconscious. Deism and um, well, not Deism. Monotheism in uh, in Tolkien's work. Um, I was wondering what the relationship is in your point of view of Morgoth and Sauron to Satan, and kind of that that inversion of of kind of the monotheism in his work.
0: Yeah. So um, so he is very clear that Sauron is not Lucifer. Um, he says somewhere that he's he's not nearly important enough. Um, uh, and so that the, the sort of Satan equivalent is, is Morgoth or Melkor as he's sometimes called. Um, that's the, the archangelic figure, the one of the Valar that, that went bad. Um, and so we have that, that, that Luciferian figure who is, you know, a powerful Valar. He could have contributed so much to the, the music of Arda, but he wants to have it his own way. He must introduce his own melody into it. Um, rather than accept the, the theme that Eru Iluvatar has given. Um, and because of that, it's that fighting back and forth that leads him to reject the work of Eru Iluvatar, to do his own thing, and ultimately, you know, the marring of Arda. Um, now, theologically, this is the place where it differs, and Tolkien notes this, that the, that Middle-earth is different from our world because in Middle-earth, the fall happened before the world was created, whereas in reality, the world was created, and then the fall happened. Um, so he's, but again, he is imaginatively playing with these ideas, and he's working through like different ways of thinking about, you know, the fall in musical terms, in different terms. But yeah, we have this this um, Satan figure who has all of the, the the characteristics of Satan in that he is rebelling out of pride and self-will, um, and ultimately he becomes a destructive figure, but one who is ultimately defeated. But after much destruction, um, and we see a very, you know, s- the, the, the sort of Satan is the father of lies, I mean, that's Morgoth straight up, you know, twisting Feanor. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen on, on social media, alternate titles for the Silmarillion. My favorite is Feanor No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, that's, so that's, that's the satanic figure, and I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, uh, that's my, my take on it. right. This, yes, this lively person here who's got, shot his hand up. Enthusiasm has won the day.
1: Thank you for your talk. Um, do you think we should think of Tolkien as a traditionalist, even a radical traditionalist, and how should that affect our understanding of his, our, his works and, our, and his faith?
0: Oh, good question. Tolkien was not a radical traditionalist. Um, And that is something that I think really needs to be emphasized. You may have noted my phrasing, he was traditionally minded. Um, And that was a very deliberate phrasing. There is a sort of sense of Tolkien in the popular Catholic culture that paints him as rejecting everything like Vatican II and the horse it rode in on. Um, And that is simply, that's just not the case. I was surprised when I did the research for Tolkien's faith I expected to find him really not approving, say, of the Norvus Ordo and all, all of that. And I, I was frankly just surprised. Um, his reaction is much, much more nuanced than I realized. So I, I could, I've got several chapters on this in the book. I'll try to boil it down to, to be a couple of interesting points. Um, One of them is that I looked very carefully at the chronology. He says some very critical things about the liturgy, very critical things um, privately about the liturgy, Um, but I looked at the dates, and he says some very critical things about priests doing terrible masses, mumbled and garbled and all that. I looked at the dates. Those comments are comments about the pre-Vatican II mass. It's very important to look at chronology in context. So when he's complaining about how easy it is to find a mass that's gaveled and rushed and people being vulgar and inattentive and all that, he's talking about the traditional Latin Mass, as we would call it. Um, this was this was not this was before Vatican II. And when he starts talking about his, his complaints about the liturgy, I looked I actually went to the point of, of corresponding with a priest in, in England who sent me scans of the Vatican II transitional missiles. I'm such a nerd. Um, so I've been been having such a lovely time here because I'm like, these are my people (laughs) this is great Um, and it turns out, again if you look at the context and the chronology, these objections are being made when the mass that he is going to is still the pre-Vatican II liturgy it has simply been moved into English but the mass itself is the same he didn't actually experience Novus Ordo until the last couple of years of his life. So the commentary he makes about it, his protest is very specifically about he is devastated that it switched into English. Um, and considering that we had a lovely Latin Mass, you know, on in in Sunday, you know, Tolkien would have loved Tolkien would have loved Sunday's Mass. It was a Novus Ordo Mass. It was beautifully reverent. It was in Latin, which Tolkien understood fluently. Um, better than most priests um, then or now, um, and he he also was a he was an amazing prose stylist, and he thought that the translations that they brought in were pretty rubbish, and he was right, and they used Ronald Knox's translation of the Psalms um, for the Psalms, and he hated Ronald Knox's translation of the Bible, um, and I sympathize. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it, Ronald Knox. The 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 translation of of the opening of the Gospel of John has something the effect of like, and and Christ, uh, you know, and he abode with God, and he you know he abode. I'm like this sounds like the Big Lebowski, you know. <laughs> this is not the Gospel of John. Um, anyway, he didn't he didn't like the translations, and for good reason. Um, so this wasn't just me a crank. But I turned up an interesting letter um, that. It's unpublished. I, I saw a bit of an auction catalog, so I was able to quote it in the book. He's talking about the Holy Week reforms of the 1950s, which were still in Latin, still an extraordinary form, as we would call it now, um, but it radically changed the, the liturgies. I mean, radically changed them. And a lot of people kind of lost their mind over that. Evelyn Waugh just blew his cork. Like, he just melted down. It was the most worst thing ever. And Tolkien wrote in a letter, that although he was personally sad to lose the liturgies that were so familiar to him, he said that he, he approved in principle of the reforms. That's actually a quote, um, and he said that they were, again I'm quoting from memory, but he says they were more suitable to the lives of modern Christians. Um, and he was right, because it allowed, moving the masses to the evening meant working people could go to them, which they couldn't before. So we have here Tolkien actually saying, I approve of the reforms, even though they make me personally sad. And that's just really a, a level of nuance that, that I was impressed by. So fast forward a little bit longer. I mean, he, he hates the fact that they've lost Latin, okay? Um, but in his retirement years, you know, he's, he's, he's living at... Um, Burton College has given him a flat, he's an elderly man, he, he could have actually just excused himself from going to Mass at all on the, on the grounds of infirmity and had them bring communion to him. And that would have been legitimate, he could have bypassed the whole sort of thing. He doesn't though. He could have gone anywhere he liked to go to Mass, um, but he, he chose to go to St. Anthony, Headington Hill, um, where he, which is an ugly, modern church that he donated a lot of money to help build. And he went to an ordinary novus ordo parish mass in the last, by choice in the last d- days of his life. And earlier, you know, when he was in his retirement years, um, he was actually a lector at Corpus Christi in Headington. And this is significant because, as I realized, laymen couldn't be lectors in the pre-Vatican era. Um, that it was only, you had to be, you, you couldn't just be a layman doing, doing readings, scripture readings. So this became a, an option only after Vatican II, and Tolkien served in that capacity. So clearly, he wasn't just sort of gritting his teeth and tolerating the Novus Ordo. He was willing to participate in it to at least a certain degree. This surprised me, but it's what it's what the facts indicate. Um, and so there's really a much much more nuanced approach to. His response to the liturgy, do I like it personally? What parts of it do I like it personally? Is this good for other people, even if I don't care for it? And then, of course, that's just the liturgy. Sorry, this answer is getting a little bit too long. Um, but then we have the fact that in terms of other parts of Vatican II, I mean, he's very, very much in tune with the decree in ecumenism um, and with Newman's idea of development of doctrine. This is something that he is articulating in his letters and in his life decades before... It's actually promulgated in, in Vatican II. So he's, he's a very complex figure. He is traditional minded. He's not a progressive. Um, and he's very rooted in tradition. Um, but he's not what we would now call today a you know, radical traditionalist. Um, he forces us to come to grips with, with kind of who he is. And his own, his own view was that the key thing was obedience, um, obedience to the church. Yeah. Okay, let's have a, over here, this side is being neglected. Yes, over here. I feel like we have this go team kind of effect here.
1: Dr. Ordway, thank you for a truly beautiful lecture, very inspiring. If you don't mind, I'm gonna push you just a little bit or maybe Tolkien through you. Just one of the quotations I know it's always dangerous, it can be taken out of context because it's just in a letter. But it strikes me as odd that he, when he said something to the effect of the story is, is just about itself, not about something beyond that. So just, uh, can, I'm going to invite you, how might we understand that in a reasonable way, given, it seems to me, there's got to be something not right about that. Because you and I, and so many millions, I think, love the story because it resonates so deeply with the real world. So to say that it's just about itself somehow is just not right, it seems to me. So how can we take that maybe in in a way that he meant it?
0: Yeah, this is such a... I I keep repeating myself great questions, but it's all true. Um, One of the things about Tolkien that I've learned from now 15 years of of really intense writing about him is you really have to get a sense of his personality, Um, and he is... Now C.S. Lewis, who I also love and I work with, C.S. Lewis is pretty much constant. You can take a C.S. Lewis quote, and as long as you get it accurately from context, you're you're pretty much you're you're fine. You can't do that with Tolkien um, because he he's he's very English is one thing. (laughs) And I say this, you know, I I am obviously American, um, but I've been spending about a quarter of the year in England every year for. 10, 12 years now, loads of English friends. Um, I, I, I'm, sort of, I'm sort of immersed in English culture. I actually have a registered parish church that I go to there. Um, so I'm, it's kind of like, I'm kind of a part time native. <laughs> and so I have had the opportunity to, to appreciate the way English people communicate, and it is not like Americans. I mean, it really isn't. Um, and so there are certain English habits of speech, um, for instance, indirection. Um, uh, circuitousness, um, mirror talk, the first time I saw, I heard two of my friends having a conversation where, to my certain knowledge, each one of them was saying the opposite of what they meant, but they both understood each other perfectly well and they were having a grand old time. That's a very characteristic English habit. It's called mirror talk. It's, 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 it's quite trippy. Um, they only do it amongst themselves because it, it confuses the natives, um, confuses, the, confuses the Americans. Um, and also, combined with this English habit of understatement, there's the very English habit of hyperbole. And Tolkien loved hyperbole. And many accounts of how he would just exaggerate and be very enthusiastic and then, and then kind of calm down. A classic example of this is an interview where um, one of his um, interviewers compared him to Dante, and he lost He's like, Dante, Dante, that petty, spiteful man. I don't care for him in his stupid little cities. <laughs> And then he sees the draft of the interview and he must have thought, they're gonna print this. <laughs> so he writes them back and he says, he says, no, no, I, I, no. <laughs> I, I, I misspoke. I, I have the greatest respect for Dante. He's a supreme poet. And, and this, this is where we get at the truth though because Tolkien did admire Dante. He was a member of the Oxford Dante Society. He has a, he has an unpublished essay on Dante. I read it in the Bodleian Library, um, but it's a classic example of the kertishly Tolkienian move. He reacts against something that he doesn't like. In this case, it was overpraise. As an Englishman, heavy praise is embarrassing, and you just reject it. And so he he has this hyper- hyperbolic rejection of the praise that leads him to say these ridiculous things about Dante. And then, having kind of cleared the air, he can say, well, actually. And then he says a perfectly normal and and respectable thing about Dante, and he just says, well, I just wouldn't dream of comparing myself to him. And that was the key, is he did not feel himself fit to be put on the same level as Dante, and that's what causes him as an Englishman to, to lose it. So he does this all the time, and we see this, for instance, in his denunciations about allegory. Um, so he says in the foreword to the second edition of the Lord of the Rings, he says, I have had a cordial dislike of allegory, um, you know, since I was old enough to detect its presence. Yeah, no. Because he uses allegory. He he uses it many places. He wrote an entire allegorical story, Leaf by Nagel is about purgatory. We know it is because he said so. (laughs) Why did he make this statement about allegory? and others like it, because he was really concerned to head off at the past dumb allegorical interpretations. Um, and in the forward to second edition, he's concerned to head off interpretations that are trying to make it an allegory of World War II. Oh, Sauron is Hitler, or maybe Sauron is Stalin, and the one ring is the nuclear bomb. And he's like, no, no, stop it. So, I think that is the context of the, the story is just about itself um, because I've looked very carefully at, at these references and he, he's, they're, they're clearing the air, kind they're, they're sort of, you know, get rid of this, the bad ideas. No, 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 no allegory here, no allegory here. It's just about itself. And then often, often in the same paragraph or certainly the same letter, he'll then say, and yeah, it's about death and the desire for deathlessness or it's about this or it's about that. So I think with some things like that, we have to realize that he, he's sometimes being strategic, sometimes he's just being very English, and sometimes he's just being curmudgeonly. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I hope that helped a little bit. We have time for one more question. Uh, let's see. Um, well, I want to get somebody way in the back because they, they have been so patient and I don't want them to be sad. Um, hark. Way back left. Red sweater. I I saw a red arm, ah, white arm back. Yes, that one. The white arm being pointed to by the red sweater. (laughs) Sorry, I'm identifying you by your clothing, but this all my middle-aged eyes can see. This little. Okay, hi. (laughs) Uh, So, from what I believe, um, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis somewhat had, if you would call it, a friendship. Could you describe the relationship between Tolkien and C.S. Lewis? Yeah, they were very, they were great friends. This is one of the great literary friendships um, of the 20th century. Um, And I think it's a really beautiful, it was a beautiful friendship. They met in 1926 when Tolkien um, became a faculty professor um, at Oxford. And they met, and, and it's interesting because um, Tolkien was a professor, Lewis never became a professor at Oxford. He was just a regular Don. Lewis was an atheist at the time, um, and, and Lewis was not terribly impressed by Tolkien when they first met. Lewis went off after they met and wrote in his diary, yeah, that Tolkien, that Tolkien you know, pale, fluent sort of fellow, no harm in him, only needs a smack or so. <laughs> But they ended up actually becoming, pretty quickly, very good friends because they had they discovered they had a mutual love for the Norse sagas. And so Tolkien formed a club to read the Norse sagas in, in the original, um, as one does. <laughs> um, and Lewis joined it. They became good friends. Um, and eventually, um, Tolkien helped to bring Lewis fully into the Christian faith. He'd become a theist, kind of on philosophical grounds. And Tolkien really has, has a pivotal effect um, on Lewis, bring him into the faith, and their friendship is sustained for many years. Um, Lewis um, had a profound positive influence on Tolkien. His friendship um, on a profound positive influence on Tolkien's spiritual life. Tolkien recognizes this; um, speaks very warmly of it. Um, they they encourage each other in their writings. Um, it's it's often said that Tolkien didn't like what Lewis wrote, and that's not true. Um, Friends. Tolkien didn't care for the, the Narnia Chronicles, but he did not hate them. Um, that, that's overblown—I will not go on about that, because I will never leave. Um, it's it's not—the it's not, it, evidence is, is the opposite. He thought—it wasn't his taste, but he thought they were—even they were good. Deservedly popular, he says in later years. Um, but he loved Out of the Silent Planet and helped to get it published. He loved Perilandra. Um, so, and then, and then Lewis was a great fan of Lord of the Rings, and Tolkien later said that had it not been for the um, persistent nagging <laughs> of uh, Lewis, he would never have finished Lord of the Rings or published it. So we owe a great debt to Lewis. Now, it's sometimes said that they had a falling out in later years, um, and that's also not, not true. Um, they saw less of each other in later years for quite natural reasons. Tolkien was married, he had four children. Um, Lewis eventually marries, has two stepchildren. Um, They're both very busy. Lewis ends up becoming a professor at Cambridge, a job that Tolkien moved heaven and earth to get for him. Um, that's, That's a good friend. Um, so they just they they're busy they're busy, and they don't see each other as much as they as they would have done um, and we must remember too that Lewis died really quite young in nineteen sixty three he was only sixty four years old now that might seem ancient to you young folks, but it's not um, and so you know there there was a sense of regret that they hadn't seen more of each other um, during their, during the time that, that Lewis had um, after Lewis died, Tolkien read letters to Malcolm chiefly on prayer, um, and found certain passages in it very offensive to him as a Catholic, um, and I, I talk about that in, in Tolkien's faith, and he writes this, this, this um, sort of draft letter that's, that's called the ulterior motive, in which he basically vents about all of the things he ever thought Tolkien was anti that Lewis is anti-Catholic about. Um, and this is sometimes taken as an indication that there had been a rift in their friendship or that, that Lewis was anti-Catholic. But it's just Tolkien, again, being hyperbolic and he's grieving and he's annoyed by this book. And he can't and if Lewis had been alive, they would have had a, a, a good, robust conversation about it. But Lewis was dead. And so his his grief ends up being poured out into this draft, which he recognizes is never gonna publish it. Um, but then like a month later, um, he ends up writing to a, a newspaper to, cor- to correct them on a point to say, no, no, no. Lewis, Lewis had certain prejudices, but he strove very hard to overcome them, and 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 by and large did. Uh, so even that that sense of his frustration with the anti-Catholic element was then tempered when he when he had time to kind of cool down. Like, no, Lewis was a good friend to me. He strove to overcome whatever prejudices he had, um, and so I really do think that. It was a, a beautiful friendship and one that was profoundly just good for, for both men. And um, we're going to have dessert and there can be more questions. And I'll be happy to talk to you there a little bit closer up. So I, I will let you all go and hopefully will chat with some of you later.